Flash is one of the greatest heroic mantles in the DC Universe. It began with student scientist Jay Garrick inadvertently stumbling upon the power of super speed in 1940, leading him to headline his own series throughout the golden age of comics and to co-found the first ever major super team, the Justice Society of America. He was followed by Barry Allen in 1956, a police forensic scientist who was struck by lightning and assorted chemicals in his lab, granting him the same powers as his childhood hero from the comic books. Barry Allen's debut launched the Silver Age of Comics and the revival of the concept of superheroes, which had mostly lain fallow for years following an industry collapse, with the exception of the enormously popular Superman and the barely surviving Batman and Wonder Woman. Barry Allen co-founded the Justice League of America, and without their success, there would likely never have been a Marvel Comics group. I've been a fan of comic book superheroes for my entire life, and The Flash is what I call a primordial, although I've been thinking lately that embryonic or osmotic might be more accurate. Basically, most fanboys become familiar with superheroes so early in their development that the relationship begins before conscious memory exists. You can't recall being introduced to them, they've just always been there. Rationally, I probably first saw The Flash on the Super Friends cartoon show, and I recall buying my first Flash comic in the early 80s. It had a neat cover, an interesting story, attractive art, and I still didn't buy another Flash comic for at least half a decade, because runs fast man bores the dickens out of me. Lots of people have a knee-jerk reaction to a given power set, most commonly magic, and mine is super speed. I can suspend an awful lot of disbelief, but when a dude's ability is to hit you a thousand times before you can even perceive he's in the room, you've got to throw him at Galactus to make things interesting. Some writers get mileage out of exploring the science of super speed, but they usually sidestep the true consequences of the power, and there's still the issue of whom to have them fight. Too often it's just another super speedster with a similar bag of tricks, so whoop-dee-doo. Also, speedsters tend to get by on applications of that one power, so you better be buying fast things because fast things are all they're selling. Years ago, when I was making a point of going back and reading Silver and Bronze Age DC comics from before my time, I found I preferred Barry Allen as both a soloist and as a JLA member over characters I was much more into at the time, like Green Arrow, Green Lantern, Adam, and Hawkman. Barry was a good guy, not assigned arbitrary, irritating personality traits just to be more like Marvel, and I appreciated that. After his death in 1986, saving the universe during the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Barry Allen became DC's Captain America. The Flash was the pure superhero everyone in the then so-called modern era admired and aspired to be. Speaking of which, Barry's sidekick Kid Flash debuted in 1959, meaning the nephew of Allen's girlfriend Iris West predates most any other relevant superhero you could name. Wally West initially had the same costume and powers as Barry, only more diminutive, but eventually began to form his own path in a new yellow and red suit as a co-founder of the Teen Titans. When Barry Allen died, Wally West became one of the first and most successful characters to transition from a sidekick to replacing the hero they patrolled with, lasting nearly 20 years as the official bearer of the Flash mantle. I was introduced to Wally West through the more X-Men-flavored early 80s revamp of the new Teen Titans and his few animated appearances. I never liked him. He was whiny, judgmental, and so thoroughly derivative of his mentor that the only quality he had to offer was a better costume. I did pick up an early issue of the 87 series, relatively new as a discounted dinged copy at a comic shop. It featured Vandal Savage, and I liked that guy immediately. I dug the Jackson Geist art and Mike Barron leaning into Wally being a jerk through his adulterous affair with Speed Demon's better half. It was enough to get me to buy a few more Millennium Period issues off the newsstand, but my interest faded quickly. Flash Annual Number 6, released in late May of 1993, was my first new Scarlet Speedster solo purchase in six years. Welcome to Keystone City, a town with a long history of heroism. For years, the Flash has been Keystone's sole protector. Now, however, a new defender has arisen to guard the city from those menaces beyond Flash's reach. His name is Argus. This is his story. Undercover Angel, by Mark Wade, Phil Hester, and Aaron McClellan. Louis Calavici was an old-school mobster, but he had arranged a clandestine meeting with a young Turk named Nick Kovac, who was doing coin tricks while he waited for the old man at an abandoned railway station. You know what a wise guy is, Nicky? He's a plant, a federal agent with a false identity who worms his way into the syndicates. Calavici had figured that such a wise guy had infiltrated his gang and showed Kovac a picture of Nick Kovac. Damn, I don't get it. Why drag me out here to bust me? Why not yank my cover in front of the big boys? Take the personal credit for the expose. 
Good plan. Here's a better one. I kill you, pin the hit on the combine, and start a gang war. Then in the confusion, I start clearing a path through upper management. Before long, I'll be such a big wheel in the family, the combine will never touch me. Before Calavici can gun down Kovacs, the bloodline's parasite, Glonth, bursts through the window at the railway station. Nick tries to gun the creature down, but his bullets have no effect. I Help me! Nick, for the love of God, help me! Sorry, Lou, but I've got my own butt to save. Who the hell? A woman with shoulder-length brown hair in a green trench coat stood in a doorway and then slowly began to transform into a six-armed green alien creature. Nick tried to outrun the beast, but it was much too fast. He was thrown through a glass window, which carved up his face. While trying to collect himself, Nick sees the reflection of the alien in the glass. He sees its long tongue protrude and bury into the back of his neck. No! All is darkness. Keystone police arrive to investigate the scene. They find Calavici's mangled, near unrecognizable body. Then they hear another sound. Who's there? I can't make out nothing. No, over there. Jeez, buddy. We couldn't hardly see you in the shadows. Polly, call the paramedics. This guy's still alive. Linda Park was driving fast through Keystone City, holding a cup of hot coffee in her teeth while trying to read and drive at the same time. She nearly killed herself and some workmen in a large pothole, but suddenly the flash appeared to build a wooden bridge out of scrap materials in the yard, swiftly enough to save the car and the workmen from Linda Park's gross, nearly lethal irresponsibility. But it's played for laughs. She arrives just in time to see Nick Kovac discharged from the hospital, his wounds largely healed. Kovac's large, thuggish bodyguard says, No questions, skirt! While pushing the woman aside, Oh, mo, mo, mo. Is that any way to treat a lady? You have to excuse him, Miss Park. He's still processing this whole wheel concept. Next week, we teach him fire. Mo, if you please. I can think of no lovelier way to spend this morning than to exchange Bon Mo's with you. Sadly, however, business beckons. When Park asks what sort of business, Now, now, Miss Park, you know what they say. Curiosity is the scourge of the soul. I have no secrets. Nick has Mo drop him off at a corner a few blocks away. He needs to make a private phone call. He thinks to himself, Skirt, where do they find these troglodytes? Then he feeds a quarter into the payphone and calls his boss with the feds. Nick Kovac is in fact Nick Kelly, plant with the FBI. His boss Marty wants to pull him off the case, thinking things have gotten too dangerous. Nick refuses, deciding that what things have actually become is personal. He thinks that the Combine has six one of their metahuman assassins on him, and he wants revenge. <laughs> A young crunch kid hangs by the arms from a hook in an abandoned slaughterhouse. Leave me alone. I ain't done nothing to you. I got friends, you know. I ate your friends. 
Prince, you're being rather ungrateful, you know. My brothers and sisters would have slain you on the spot, then moved on to other victims. They work too hard. I prefer to instead gather my prey in bulk and savor them at my whim. Veneth accuses Glanth of compromising their operation by keeping these unsecured snacks lying around. Then proceeds to eat the grunge boy. Ah, Venev, you're just jealous that I staved a snack and you didn't. Lost in reverie, Nick is almost hit by a car and suddenly begins to see everything around him through thermal imaging. He stumbles into an alley where a bunch of skinheads are beating up on an old black man. He calls out the creeps, who can't see him. So long as he's in shadow, he's effectively invisible. Nick smashes a nearby light with a brick, and the whole group is fair game for his fists. Peekaboo, this is Nick. This is Nick at night. Any questions? After beating the racist, Nick thinks it was her, the monster, and what she did to me. Had to be. There's no other explanation. This is, this is incredible. Not only have my strength and reflexes been amplified, woof, tripled, but I can filter light waves through my body. In normal light, I'm perfectly visible, but in deep shadow, I'm practically transparent. And my eyes, my vision opens up a whole new world. All these things I can do, all these powers, are going to help me get some real answers. The police find more victims of the parasites, and the chief is only willing to talk to Linda Park off the record. He doesn't want to start a panic about all these murders evolving extreme circumstances, regardless of how similar they are to the Calavici assassination. While leaving the scene, Linda Park notices some sawdust, which piques her interest. No guns. I can't beat the metal detectors with guns. Ceramic nunchucks, however, should pass, as will leather body armor. With Teflon fiberglass trim and Kevlar weave. If Marty even suspected that I'd boosted commando armor from the home office, he'd yank my badge for sure. Too late to worry about that, though. Once I'm on the other side of that skylight up there, I can't afford to think about anything except the combine security system. When I was in federal training, they taught us to use night vision goggles. They were heavy, cumbersome, and prone to failure. Now, just by concentrating, I can pick out infrared beams on my own, naturally, and clear them with ease. And not just infrared, I'm attuned to the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Frequencies normally invisible to the human eye are crystal clear to me. Ultraviolets, radar beams, microwaves. It's like looking at a rainbow that no one else has ever seen. Nick in his lightweight purple and blue armor may be a whiz at avoiding security systems, but when it came to opening a simple doorknob, is strength proved a bit too much and he ended up wrenching it from the wooden frame. Nick begins searching the Combine Mafia Don's office and at first comes up empty-handed. Wonder what's not out in the open. Better yet, I wonder if these baby blues of mine can tap into ambient x-rays. Relax. Focus. Bingo. Behind the wall. Wires. Pipes. And a safe. Not what I'd call x-ray vision exactly. It's more like a view through an airport fluoroscope. Solid shapes, but no color or detail. Oh well, so much for looking through women's dresses. Nick hears voices coming up the hall. They're discussing the murder of Calavici. Now the Combine had nothing to do with it. What? Whoever, whatever it was that killed Calavici and attacked me, had no connection to the Combine. What was it then? Will I ever find out? The mobsters were talking about having a 
fight, and Venev decided that, that was a good idea. She takes out one of the two mobsters immediately. Then Nick tries to jump in on the action. Despite leaping silently from the shadows, he's immediately detected and thrown a distance, landing on a car. So fast. Didn't see her. In seconds, Venev has claimed another victim. Dead. Both of them. Car alarms will bring others down here in minutes. I've got to get gone. Not before making one last ditch effort to nail this creepy crawler. I'm not scared of you. Not this time. Do you hear me? I want answers and I'll get them if I have to beat them out of you. Brave words. Foolish sentiment. Bit of make short work of Nick, but she leaves a clue behind. Sawdust. Somehow, with no further explanation, Linda Park is able to connect the sawdust that she found to the old slaughterhouse and brings an African-American cameraman with her. You guessed it, Dude's Dead, second page. I often enjoy good conversation with my dinner, and you... You'll make a delightful dessert. Nick also traced the sawdust to the slaughterhouse, but at least he offers some kind of valid explanation. It was a stretch. Sawdust suggests anything from a lumber yard to a general store. But when I remembered how close the slaughterhouse is to the abandoned rail yard and the station where they found Calavici and me, I figured I had something. I... What was that? course, a heat trail that moves that fast can only belong to one man. Where is she, creep? Where's Linda? Flash? What have you done with her? Whoa, whoa, Linda. She's been missing for hours. Someone at the station thought she'd be here. But all I found so far was a shattered camera. I don't know who you are, but... Chill, Flash. I'm not your enemy. They are. Cloth backhanded the Flash a hundred feet through a wooden railway car. With enormous speed, Venev raced up behind him, diving in for the kill. Gotta wait just in time. My God, I don't know what that thing is. But despite its bulk, it moves like the wind. Knock it off its feet. Don't know if this will work, but I don't know what else to. Enough. Tender, marvelous. I've heard you would speak well of fast food. Nick smashed through the skylight and found Linda dangling from one of those hooks we talked about. He was followed swiftly by a raging glove. You want me, fatso? Come and get me. I'll grind your bones. You'll have to find me first. It worked. He lost me in the shadows. That a boy. Closer. Closer. There. Nick kicked Glonth in the face, then began hitting him harder and harder, faster and faster, keeping him off his guard. It's the only prayer you have of winning. Just don't let him hear you gag on the stench. God, it's bad in here. Rotting animal flesh. Methane gas. Light a match in this place and they'll be scraping us off the moon. Glonth recovers, but Nick dives back into the shadows. Know where you are now, fatso? In the old days, they called it the killing floor. That's right, livestock on the hoof by the dozens, herded in, single file, to face one man with a very big hammer. Yeah! Nick smashes a sledgehammer across Glant's head, but he still has a metal chain connected to the busted handle, allowing him to swing again and again from a distance. And that's not all. Once the cows were stunned, that's when things got really nasty. That's when they were chained, trussed, and hung out dry. Nick manages to wrap the chains around Glant's leg, tripping him, and then flips a lever that drags Gloth up off the ground. Meanwhile, Venev was inches away from suckling the life force of the Flash, but he isn't called the Flash for nothing, and he swiftly speeds away. He tries out a new trick, vibrating his hands at super speed until they're red hot, and then burns Venev's eyes. My eyes. You touched my eyes. They burn. Flash then grabs some loose rebar and throws them like harpoons through Venev. Eyes. 
flatlined, and Venev still managed to find a gas tanker to throw at the Flash, igniting in a huge blaze. Amidst this inferno, the Flash needed to find his lady love, Linda Park. Meanwhile, Nick is still fighting with Glonth, but he too soon feels the flames. Forget the monster. I have to free Linda before the place blows sky high. Where is she? Damn it. Can't find her through all the smoke. Scanning with thermal vision is useless. All I pick up is reds and yellows from the fire. It's hot everywhere. Wait, maybe I'm going about this all wrong. Compared to the flame, Linda's body temp would be cool. A silhouette of blues and greens. Nick finally detects Linda, leaps through the fire, and pulls her off of the hook. She knows that he's wearing a mask and asks who he is. Don't ask. Curiosity is the scourge of the... Whoops. Hmm. Just about then, the Flash manages to find the pair and pull them out of the fire. The Flash wanted answers about these monsters and the new vigilante. However, an explosion as the fire hit the methane in the slaughterhouse managed to distract the Flash for just long enough for this new mystery man to disappear in the shadows. The next morning, Nick watches the firefighters put out the blaze from the distance while sitting on his motorcycle. Linda Park is also still prowling the scene and spots Mr. Curiosity. She likes him in his brown jacket, but she prefers the leather and buckles look. Linda figures she still owes Nick Kovac her life and promises to keep his secret, especially because she realizes that she dates a good guy, she knows good guys, and Nick's a good guy. Yow, the Flash is a lucky man to have someone like that. Good thing, the way the mob war is escalating in this city, he's going to need all the luck he can get. Then again, maybe he won't have to deal with it himself. Maybe, just maybe, he'll have some help. Of the four Bloodlines annuals I'd bought up to this point, I think I liked the Flash annual fourth best, but a lot of that was due to my own prejudices coming in. I was very much into the image style of art at that point in time. I love the Homage Studios artists in particular, so Phil Hester's much more abstract style was against the grain of my taste at that point in time. And he was still a young and developing artist who wasn't very strong on the superhero work, but when I look at it in retrospect, I see that Hester was good at the horror aspects, and he had strong storytelling, so I enjoyed his work a lot more on rereading it. At this point in time, Mark Wade was nobody to me, so his name had no weight, and I still have some issues. It kind of bothers me as much as I know that this is supposed to be a Flash annual. It feels like Linda Park is shoehorned into the story. I don't particularly like her, and I know the story wants me to enjoy her, so they're pushing her on any kind of greats. The Flash isn't really geared toward horror stories either, so again, his presence doesn't help. Plus, I just don't like the Flash, and I didn't then either. But that's one area where I think Mark Wade was very smart. Right from the first page, he tells you this is Argus's origin story. This is about this character. And it's a character that does work within the Bloodlines horror genre. So it's good that he's the main guy. And by the nature of being a Flash annual, I just have to put up with that character. That bit with the sawdust is really dumb, though. Maybe if it were sawdust mixed with old caked-in blood or something, something that would let you know that it wasn't part of the current crime scene, it didn't belong. But just saying, hey look, sawdust, and then connecting that to this old slaughterhouse doesn't make much sense. Another thing that doesn't make much sense is the jacked-up coloring by Adrienne Roy. She did such a great job on the Shot of the Bat annual, but here I don't know if she didn't read the script or if it was a rush job or what, but the coloring isn't anywhere near as nuanced. And my main issue is that she keeps doing scenes that are supposed to be in the daytime at night or more of a problem. There are nighttime scenes that appear to be daytime. Night and day changes back and forth with great rapidity. It really screws with the storytelling continuity. And there's just a flatness to a lot of the coloring that only highlights the lack of detail and sometimes awkward 
weird musculature of Phil Hester's art. And so going in with these prejudices and with the issues already inherent in the story, regardless of my biases, I didn't really warm to Argus for a long time. And it's funny because in rereading the story, I realized that he anticipated in some ways bettered two later Bloodlines characters that I enjoyed more. He has the invisibility and much of the MO of Geist from the Detective Comics Annual, plus all the vision powers of Hitman from the Demon Annual. And especially because Hitman dropped those powers early on, Argus has even greater ownership of them. Further, the way Argus's powers work make a lot more sense than Geist did, and I realize now that I was probably heavily swayed by the art of Jim Ballant, which was much more that image style that I was into than Phil Hester's work. So reading the book today, I think it works a lot better than I gave it credit for at first. I think Argus is actually pretty darn cool, and it makes sense that he would be one of the relative breakouts of the New Bloods. I also think that Gloth was well written in this story, and Wade managed to find some angles on Venev to make her more interesting. She was never one of my favorite Bloodlines parasites, but this is one of her better outings. And when the evening comes, we smile. In 1994, Mark Wade, Brian Augustine, and Barry Kitson began exploring the beginnings of the world's greatest superhero team over an epic 12-issue comic maxi-series. And yes, we've just begun. That team was the Justice League of America, and that comic was JLA Year One. In 2016, eight podcasts will come together to cover this series in a single month. That month is JL May. Featuring the Fire and Water Podcast, The Power of Fishnets, Waiting for Doom, The Lantern Cast, Supermates Podcast, The Idle Head of Diablo, Comic Reflections, and Views from the Long Box. Each podcast will cover one or two issues of JLA Year One, and then coverage will move from show to show. It all starts in the Fire and Water Podcast with issues one and two. JL May, an epic month for an epic series. Available where you find all good podcasts. In Bloodbath number two, most of DC's iconic superheroes had been defeated by one final giant parasite. It initially appeared as if only Superman hadn't gotten clear, but then the Flash showed up with a group of New Bloods. This small group tried to take on the giant parasite, didn't make much headway, but they weren't the only ones set on trying. There were an estimated 1,000 parasite attacks and sightings of about 25 survivors who discovered they had superpowers. When he heard of this, the president asked for volunteers among these so-called New Blood heroes. In the whole country, only these eight volunteered, Shot, Lionheart, Shadow Strike, Joe Public, Crag, Geist, Ballistic, Argus. Pretty depressing. And Lionheart isn't even an American. Regardless, they were ferried in via helicopter transport. These other guys are pretty enthusiastic. I guess their powers are more offensively useful than ours. Fat lot of good my shadow power does at high noon. Geist was feeling the same way. But then they saw gunfire trying to convert a big hunk of matter into an energy projection, which was his power, but he couldn't walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. Argus introduced himself and Geist by their superhero names to Gunfire. That was the first time that it happened inside of an actual comic book story, Nick calling himself Argus. And then Argus and Geist became Gunfire's setup men. For instance, they ripped up a hunk of railroad tracks and lifted it up while Gunfire energized it and shot it at the giant parasite. That worked out pretty well. So next Gunfire 
Spitfire tried to juice up an entire engine car from the train. While at the same time, Argus uses vision powers to detect a weak spot in the armor of the giant parasite, affecting one of the most devastating blows in the conflict between the New Bloods and the giant. While this effort didn't actually win the day, it did show the way to victory, so that Argus and the New Bloods did eventually end the reign of terror of the Bloodlines parasites. Next up was the January 1994 86th issue of a book whose cover briefly read as Argus and Flash, Striking from the Shadows. In the story, Rival Forces, again by Mark Wade, local news reported on a group called Team Turmoil, being routed by the Flash and Argus, the Flash's newest partner, an assumption that made Wally West so mad he flung milk at his television? Who the hell does that? I hate Wally West. Linda Park stuck up for Argus, and she also had to point out that he had saved her life. I helped! I just don't like the guy. Argus has been operating in Keystone for months, and I still don't know who he is, or why he is, or anything. He pops up out of nowhere, keeps the shadows, then blows out once trouble is over. What's he hiding? The news report continued. Today, FBI agents explored the former headquarters of the Combine, the high-tech crime cartel that once terrorized the city. Driven out of Keystone by the Flash, the Combine apparently left behind a mysterious time capsule of sorts. An impossibly dense and heavy device agents have been unable to open or even move. Time capsule my butt. Those Combine goons were techno wizards. There's no telling what that Hummer is. Don't touch that thing. Don't touch that thing. Linda gave us a facepalm at her boyfriend talking to the television. Wally suited up to run off to talk to the FBI about their tinkering with this time capsule. Meanwhile, we returned to Nick Kovacs, who had embedded himself in Emil Akava's game. Akava was brutally beating a man for information, and what was told that what was actually hidden in the time capsule was evidence against Akava, who had whacked boss Jack Loman to make himself head of the familia. Kovacs had himself a little reverie recapping the Flash annual, and then an old Emil talked to his boys about dusting off a laser that had been stolen from Star Labs to try to take out that capsule. Nick then headed off to an amusement park to discreetly tell his boss, Marty, about Emil's plans. Marty had already given the brush off to the Flash, not needing his help in a federal investigation, and he also hoped like heck that that Argus guy didn't show up. This ticked off Nick, so he decided he was going to deal with this time capsule issue himself. Flash back over to Wally West. He'd been tipped off by the Pied Piper that there was a technical wizard that might be able to help him out with the time capsule, but he had to run through a gauntlet of deadly booby traps to get to this fellow. McAllister built weapons, and he had a pretty bad attitude. He was missing his right arm at the shoulder, had long reddish blonde hair and a ponytail, scraggly beard, single earring on the left side, and a bandolier of tools. Dude was very 90s. McAllister throws Flash a lot of attitude and lets him know that whatever's in that time capsule, he should assume the worst for all anyone knew it was a neutron bomb. You're right. FBI or no FBI, I'm going to take care of it myself. Damn, I'd hope to beat him to it. Argus came out of the shadows, joking with McAllister about his false front as a scuzzy underworld type, when in truth he'd been supplying Argus with his high-tech weapons, including a nude pair of nunchucks made from spent uranium sheathed in titanium. Heavier than hell. Mm. The Flash raced past the feds and started tinkering with the time bomb, or whatever it was. We get to see the device is actually scanning the retinas and other biometric identifiers, looking for a specific subject. And Wally West isn't it, so nothing happens. Next, Argus shows up and he's scanned. Nothing happens except for Argus and Flash arguing, Argus saying that the time capsule is actually the safe with the evidence he's looking for, and Flash continuing to assume it's a bomb. Finally, Emil Akova, his boys, and his lasers show up, trying to blast at the heroes. The capsule positively identifies 
realize this fellow is its target and steals doors slam at all the exits trapping everyone inside then a giant green cyclopean robot turns up looks kind of like that thing from the Shi'ar Imperial Guard if you ever read X-Men but it also works somewhat similarly to a T-1000 it morphs and has sort of a liquid metal quality to it so for instance when Argus tries to smack him with the nunchucks green goo splashes about but no harm is done Flash tries to bunch it at super speed and nearly loses his arm trapped in a cartoonish Looney Tunes hole Argus had to sort of smack it out at one point the lights all go out Argus starts using his vision powers and he realizes that he can see that the pedestal to the time capsule is lit up like a Christmas tree and that it is the power source for the robot so Argus and Flash team up to smash the capsule that takes out the morphing robot then the stupid gangsters turn on them trying to kill the guys before they can cause them any issues legal wise and Emil makes the mistake of actually bragging to them that he was the one who killed Jack Loman not realizing that the Flash had drug him to a police station and he was essentially admitting to the crime in front of the cops Argus thinks Wally's a showboat Flash thinks Argus is arrogant they can both live with that though and on that note he's off into the night I may still be uncomfortable with his methods but much as I hate to admit it this town might be big enough for the both of us after all I think this was one of the better issues of my brief time reading Flash comics great cover the interiors were by Mike Wieringo and Rob Haynes at this point in time I believe the Flash books were coming out bi-weekly and I think that's what blew Wieringo's schedule so he needed to have a guest artist come in and what was nice is they managed to split it up so that most of the early Flash pages were by the regular series artist Wieringo and then most of the Argus pages were drawn by Rob Haynes who had a darker and more abstract style that recalled Phil Hester and did a great job of showing this whole night and day quality sort of like Batman Superman Flash is the bright and shining super super powered hero Argus is the nighttime Avenger with less spectacular powers grittier more realistic yada yada but then when Flash and Argus team up you get to see both artists do each of these characters in their own style we don't get to see a lot of Wieringo's Argus and it's funny because he has this big pompadour looking thing like from out of the 50s but it's fun and I think another reason why I like Argus is he's a jerk to Flash and vice versa and the jerk's jerk is my friend or something like that from there Argus had a very brief cameo in Showcase 94 number 12 he was one of many New Bloods featured on recent magazine covers this one being I believe ID as part of a prelude to the formation of the Blood Pack while at the same time casually promoting Showcase 95 number 1 through 2 where Argus would have a feature leading into his miniseries but we'll get back to Argus in a little bit I want to spend a bit more time on the Flash first I tried the book repeatedly during Mark Wade's well-regarded run starting with number 80 which was the beginning of Alan Davis's brief stint as cover artist heralded by a foil stamped cover after six years of being a pale shadow of Barry Allen's Flash Wally West finally overcame his inhibitions in the role Wally tweaked the classic costume began building up his powers in rogues gallery and gained one of his signature artists in the late great Mike Wieringo I don't remember much about these stories except that he often fought a version of the mafia that used high-tech weaponry and metahumans called the Combine although you'd be forgiven for assuming they were inner gang because the only substantial difference was the tang of dark side Flash number 81 through 82 featured Nightwing and Starfire the main reasons I bought the comic and was the only issue in that time period that assumed Dick and Corey were legally married in the then recent New Titans number 100 for the record their wedding service was interrupted by an assault by demonic sexual predators and then the union was either ambiguously dissolved or the marriage license went up in the hellfire I continued buying number 83 through 85 because the book was being talked about and I wanted to give it a fair shake a couple of those issues featured a brawny dude called Razor who supposedly raised things and I think combined super speed and maybe strength with metal blades and some sort of Teflon nonstick coating Flash couldn't directly make contact with everything I was saying I don't like about super speedsters right there at some point very soon after the Argus guest appearance I bowed out for a period I can't quite pin down because I didn't particularly like any of those stories and the details left my brain along with the non-course lyrics to all of MC Hammer's songs can't touch this I bought every comic during DC's zero month promotional event and I do know I was back no later than Flash number 92 which featured the debut of Barry Allen's hyper 
ADHD grandson from the 30th century Bart Allen, who I only ever liked slightly more than Wally West. They teamed up with a bunch of other speedsters who I may have mentioned all have the exact same set of tedious powers to fight. No, wait. No, Cobra, with a K, of all people. They might have been all right for Flash on his own, but that organization repeatedly tangled with Batman and the Outsiders. So a whole group of speedsters is like the Dallas Cowboys taking on the Mighty Ducks in an arm wrestling competition. This all led to the Terminal Velocity story arc resolving in the 100th issue of Flash during a run drawn by future X-Men artists Carlos Pacheco and Salvador La Roca. Argus even worked his way into that arc, and it looked great, but the whole thing ultimately hinged on the Flash fake dying and being resurrected through... No, not at all like the problems people have with magic in comics. I hung on until about number 102 because Mongol was the villain, but seriously, this was my longest run of reading a comic that left little to no impression on me to speak of in any kind of depth 20 years later featuring characters I never cared a whit about displaying powers I openly disdain. Not only couldn't I get past my dislike of Wally, but it seemed to me Wade was writing something closer to a stealth Superman family with all the speedsters. I did appreciate that Wally showed legacy heroes could work in the DCU, but at the same time Wally himself had nothing going for him besides being the kid sidekick that grew up to take the mantle. I'm glad his development helped keep Barry's seat warm and heavily informed his personality expansion beyond Silver Age 2D into something sustainable across multimedia. But ultimately, Wally West's greatest service was as a beta test for creating a truly iconic Flash out of a lucky bum placeholder. Meanwhile, it's a testament to Mark Wade's continued support of his new blood, where many other creators copped a squat and bolted with barely enough investment in their crap creations to cut the loaf that I'm willing to buy and read more Flash comics to get to Argus. However, this also forces an adjustment to my original vision for the show, which was to offer a retrospective of each New Blood's entire career in one episode. That was never tenable, though, as I don't currently have in my possession many, if any, issues of Anima or Gunfire's ongoing series, and at one point I was going to rearrange the order of their appearances on the show to push them way to the back. Never mind Hitman's 60-issue run, plus his co-starring stint in The Demon, his own eponymous annual miniseries special, etc. Trying to look at all that in just one episode undercuts the characters who actually saw success from this event. It's not fair to me to have to massage all that material in one show and neglects the broader scope of the show as it moves forward. The DC Bloodlines podcast isn't just about new bloods, so why act like everything has to be a one and done? Bloodlines was a major entry point for me into the DC universe, and the show is intended to open up from this starting point as it goes forward to encompass more characters and to give the more accomplished new bloods room to breathe. We'll see Argus again, but let's move forward and in the proper sequence first. And don't be surprised if some week I just up and give the spotlight to Bronze Tiger or Omac. November 4th, 1988, Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Kuns, the Tanagarians, and the Durlins, and they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover, issue by issue. Tie in by tie in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Miller. Diablo Frank. 
<laughs> and just Diablo. Oh, I'm going uh, yeah. to get. I'm going to get franked, right? You're going to get. Well, you might get franked. You never know. I dallied with DC in the late '80s, but mostly stuck with Marvel and more specifically the X titles until going into the '90s. I'm currently charting my primary entry into the DC universe one annual at a time on the Bloodlines podcast. It's a fun one to listen to. Yeah, it is. Check it out at Rolled Spine uh, Podcasts or Bloodlines was like this terrible DC crossover was just like um, like xenomorph aliens drinking out of people's spines and turning them into metahumans. Oh, okay. And DC was going to use these metahumans as like the, the new blood of their universe. Like, let's create a bunch of trench-coated, <laughs> I mean, it's 90s. <laughs> Pocket, pocketed, pouched. Uh, gross uh, heroes and villains. And the only one that ever made a difference was Hitman. Okay. Hitman was a good comic. All the rest are forgettable. Oh my god, we should do a Hitman thing. Hitman, uh, I wish Hitman was an in invasion. But yeah, Hitman's great. Everything else, pretty sucky. Frank chronicles it on his show. <laughs> it's called Bloodlines, the Bloodlines Podcast. Check it out. Cool. If you enjoyed the undercurrent music that played on this episode, please feel free to legally download the following songs. Flashlight by Parliament. Prelude Nightfall by Tiger Army. Sunglasses at Night by Corey Hart. Low Red Moon by Belly. Iris by Live. Or Rush by Depeche Mode. We received social media love from the 108th Sage, Adam Blackmoon, Andrew Leyland, Ange, Between the Pages, Bill Bear, Brian Mulvey, Cash Flag, Chris Sheehan, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Comics Couplets, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, D Sugar, Ed Moore and Ed Moore Jr. at Any Comics Fan, at Teal Productions, at Miskatonic, Fangirl Nation, Firestorm Fan, FKA Jason, Hicks, Joseph Crawford, Josh Lowe, Carl Brusades, Keith Chi Baker, Kevin at Red Sox Red Shoes, Mark Sweeney Jr., Michael Bailey Podcasts, Paul Scavito, Professor Alan Middleton, Radio vs. the Martians, Richard Field, Ryan Daly, Scott Bachman, The Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Son of Cthulhu, Stella at Bad Girl to Oracle, Super Friend Super Show Podcast, Synodalia Scarecrow, Two Dangerous for a Girl Blog, and the podcasts Trekker Talk and Waiting for Doom. Trekker Talk wrote of the Outbreak episode, Can I listen to one more without having my spinal fluid sucked out? The Irredeemable Shag wrote of the episode, Oh geez, I left you a comment back on April Fool's Day praising your coverage of the event. I guess the comment got eaten. Sad face. Well, you really did a fantastic job with your well-thought-out coverage and recap of the industry at the time. Seriously, as a retailer myself at this time, you did an excellent job. Well done. Siskoid wrote of the Edge of Steel episode, Love Steel and totally rate him much higher than Cyborg. If there could be only one, which is a problem in and of itself. Plum forgot all about Edge until you reminded me with this cover. He has an unfortunate porn-related name now, so not due for a return, I'm sure. Dude, have you seen this guy? I wish to God what came to mind when you referenced this character and porn was mere edging. I'm thinking more like that one scene from Seven. He made me do it. <sighs> Clint Robinson of Coffee and Comics blog on the Pagan and Joe Public episode. Every time I look at Joe Public, he just looks like the unlicensed knockoff of a much friendlier Judge Dredd. Pagan's design I can live with, fairly basic costume for a newly minted hero, but oh ye gods at art. As Monty Python fans are fond of saying, <laughs> Ryan Daly of the Power of Fishnets and Secret Origins podcast wrote, I was wondering who was going to be the first to point out the timeline error in the JL May trailer. Thanks, Frank. The Irredeemable Shag wrote, Oh wow, you were serious about Bloodline's character profiles. I thought that was an April Fool's joke. I caught up and listened to them all. Enjoyed all of them. Love your coverage and the voices. However, the coverage also reminds me just how awful this storyline really was. Even though I was totally on board at the time, it's tough to reread. New characters are a great concept, but fell down in execution. 
I had also forgotten how early these came in the reign of the Superman. I'm sure that was a real unexpected monkey wrench for the creative teams that had meticulously planned out that story. Also, Joe Public looked very 2000 AD to me. Keep up the great work, and thanks for calling me out on the promo. Ouch. The Irredeemable Shag, your brother from another Bloodlines Parasite. Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast wrote, This is the first time I've disagreed with you, Frank. You made me quit the DC Martian Manhunter forums during the Elstrander run. This annual is terrible. Joe Public is a character instantly doomed by his stupid name, costume, and powers. Pagan is a character that just doesn't ring true in any way. And her name comes so clearly from the bucket you use when all the good names elude you. I was pretty down on the Shadow of the Bat series at this point, finding Alan Grant's stories to be less and less fun. This one got curated out of my collection many years ago. I went through my comic collection in the late 90s and asked myself, do I want to reread this? These issues are no longer with me. Also, Shag is to blame for many things, but I was the one who typoed the wrong date in the JLMA promo and didn't notice the error till I started hearing it in the podcast world. Still very much looking forward to your episode, plus your origin supplemental coverage. Oh, hey, sorry about cyberbullying you before I knew that was a thing. I just hope you weren't that guy that suggested Kevin Smith to write the Marshman Manor series that I quoted martial law at. Siskoid wrote, No memories of these guys. I'm starting to chomp the bit for blood I remember. Illegal Machine wrote, Petitioning Frank to make Joe Public the official mascot of the Rolled Spine podcasts. Keechee Baker wrote, Seconded. No, you're overruled. Hate that guy. Hicks added, With Siskoid covering Invasion and Commander Blanks covering Bloodlines, I'm scared someone will snag Genesis before I get my act together. I'm telling you, the zero hour hour is the way to go. The preceding DC Comics-related program is a non-profit fan production. Any copyrighted materials therein are believed covered under fair use, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please leave your comments on the DC Bloodlines blog, the Rollsbind Podcast's WordPress page, via email at emailofdiabalu at yahoo.com, or you can tweet the host directly on the Twitters at Commander Blanks, spelled with an X. You can also talk to the whole Rolled Spine gang on the Twitters at Rolled Spine. We hope you enjoyed our little program, and remember, spill the blood! <laughs>